Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This investigative journo, author and broadcaster has brought stories to life from some of the most remote corners of Australia. From a range of rural towns around Queensland, Amanda Gearing has covered national news for The Australian, The Times in London, ABC Radio National and Crikey. Amanda won a Walkley Award for Best Radio Documentary for her coverage of the flash flood disaster in Toowoomba and the Lockyer Valley in The Day That Changed Grantham. She's also unfortunately flinchingly covered an international child sexual abuse scandal in the Anglican Church in Australia and its ongoing ramifications. And it all started from a small office in Mount Isa where her career began. Amanda, thank you for joining us on the Journo Project podcast. It's lovely to be here, Nance. Here we are in the beautiful surrounds of Western Brisbane with, with the birds tweeting in the background. In a way, it's really quite reflective of you know, where your career started out in the country. This is sort of the country aspect of Brisbane. But uh, can you tell us a bit about how you started as a journalist? I started by going to the University of Queensland and picking a few subjects. I happened to pick Newswriting 101. And as part of Newswriting 101, a fellow called Dennis Butler came in who had been an editor at the Newcastle Herald. And he told us about one of his feature stories, which became a series, which became a little book. And it was called Who Am I? And it was about an adopted child searching for her parents and once that first one ran other people came forward and that whole research project led to the founding of the organisation Jigsaw which helped adoptive children find their parents. And that was enough to plant the seed in your mind that this could be a good way for me to go doing something similar to this. I was always a very philosophical, idealistic type of person I was involved in debating and all that sort of thing, interested in the world. And when I heard Dennis Butler, it immediately was the lightning rod. I want to do something that will make a difference. He showed me a way to make a difference and I thought that's for me, I'm doing it. And has it proven to, uh, has your career proven to be that, do you think, Amanda, looking back? In a lot of ways it has. Mm. I think my model of journalism is probably a little different from others, especially in those days. Mm. There were not a lot of females in the business. It was mostly a male-dominated job in those days. And the way I approached it was probably different, probably a bit more intuitive. In a lot of ways, I went in very blind, dumb and stupid, where angels fear to tread. But I toppled corrupt councils, I had hospitals built, I had roads built, I had public housing upgraded uh, before I turned 22. So tell us a bit about those. I mean, this uh, council being uh, toppled. So this was out bush, one of your first postings? It was from Mount Isa, 
but from Mount Isa that was the regional centre of the whole of northwest Queensland and we had different rounds. So Cloncurry Shire Council was one of my rounds. So I drove out to the Curry every month for <laughs> for a council meeting and I noticed over time that the council was doing some things that weren't quite right, but partly because they were not quite competent, but they were overpaying their senior people and they ran the council budget dry, the coffers were dry, and they had a staff of about 60 outside workers. They worked in the hot sun, fixing potholes, drawing lines up the road, all those hard sort of jobs, and they sacked the whole lot. They sacked 60 in one go. And I thought to myself, I thought, as a budding, you know, <laughs> 20-year-old, that's not fair. What shall I do? And my mind went back to my local government lectures at the University of Queensland and the lecturer Doug Tucker and I thought I'll just phone Doug. So I phone up Doug Tucker and I say hey Doug this is what's going on. What can I do? What can anyone do? And he said well you need a federal state arbitration commission hearing on that. So I called up the arbitration commission. Like nobody says you can't do this. So I just did. And they said, well, there's a lot of people to bring to Canberra. They had never sat outside Canberra and they'd never had so many people all at once to deal with. So they said, we'll just come to the curry. So up they came for the first time ever, sat outside of Canberra in Cloncurry, heard the, both sides that day. At the end of that day, they sacked the entire council. They put in a, an administrator and they reprieved the whole 60 all 60 men and women got their jobs back. And I thought, that's good. <laughs> and this is the power of journalism. Yes, it's, it's the power of journalism in letting people know what is happening. But my particular angle on that is that I think everybody should have access to the media. A lot of people think that the media is awfully fearsome and scary and unapproachable, but I would like to see the media as a place that anybody can access. And for that reason, even as a very young reporter, I went into schools as often as I could and I took part in the program called Newspapers in the Classroom and I taught kids all about how newspapers work, how the media works, what the media can do, how you can get access to it and all of that. And you're still doing that today with your teaching at university and other places as well? I speak to whoever will listen, <laughs> basically. <laughs> well, journalism's given you that confidence, I suppose. <laughs> yes, but I think over time there have been some issues that have really struck a chord with me. And some of that is people in the bush are far removed from the centre of power. In Mount Isa, there was a lot of very anti-George Street feeling. And, and we were able to do some stories up there which captured the interest, let's say, and got the attention of senior people in the Queensland government. And it took not very long for ministers to say, ah, the Northwest Star, Mount Isa, what's your problem now? How can we fix that for you? And we became pretty 
adequate fixes of whatever was going on. So I think there's a lesson in that. Well, there's a few lessons in that, isn't there, for budding reporters. You don't have to be at the Washington Post, I suppose, or whatever, the New York Times to be making a difference. You can make a difference, sometimes a bigger difference, I think, at these small papers that are so crucial to these communities. Yes, I think so, relative to where you are. So from the point of view of those 60 workers who got a reprieve, that was a life-changing moment for them. They would have maybe had to leave town. Who knows what would have happened to those people. Getting the hospital built in Mount Isa was a big thing too. Getting Lawn Hill Gorge National Park gazetted was another big thing. That was a bit of a a personal fight with a Brazilian cattle baron. He was good mates with Joe Bielke-Peterson, who was the Premier in those days, and Joe had given him access to Lawn Hill Gorge to water his cattle, and he was just going to blow the whole thing up so that he could let the water run free and water his cattle. And I thought, I don't think so. So I did a few well-placed stories, and the greenies, as they were in those days, they were... They were a very light shade of green in those days, not much really happening. But I went up there and wrote about it and in not very much time, uh, we got Lawn Hill Gorge National Park. And I'm really happy about that. You know, there's the, apart from the wildlife, the Aboriginal paintings, it's now a lovely tourist resort. People can go there and enjoy the place and it's not blown up. And that must give you some sense of satisfaction that that wouldn't have happened if not for those stories, Amanda. Yes, it's it's people power, it's a bit of media power, a bit of just doing what one foot in front of the other, never really knowing if it's going to work or not. You go into these things not promising because you can't promise that, the you know, what a p- particular mob wants will happen but you can have a jolly good crack yeah shipping away at stories really isn't it i find a lot of the time you're not really sure where that's going to go like you say and sometimes it goes very big like there was a the little case that i reported on in toowoomba that went national fairly quickly and what was that one amanda there was a girl who had been at a private school in toowoomba and she had been sexually assaulted by the senior boarding master Uh, She had filed a claim in about 1995. Six years later, it still wasn't settled. The Archbishop of Brisbane at the time, Peter Hollingworth, had not been willing to do anything about that situation. Her life had been destroyed. And eventually she took a civil action The diocese dealt very badly with her. I think that's a matter of the record now. But in the end, she went to trial and that started the exposure of what we now know as widespread epidemic, pandemic of sexual assault of children within institutions and churches and schools all over Australia and the world. So that story because it had been that the Archbishop by then was the Governor-General of Australia, it went big instantly. So from me sitting in a little rural courthouse in Toowoomba, there was nobody else connected to the national media 
So as soon as I, because I was writing for News Limited, it just went bang to national. And, and that started the calls for the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, which happened another 10 years yes, later. It took a while to come, but it eventually got there. And this is what these stories can build to, isn't it? We, we never quite know where they will end up. That's right. Well, it was obvious from then that we needed a Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse. There was a, a very big disaster on our hands and there was political opposition to it at the time and that political opposition ebbed and flowed, ebbed and flowed and it wasn't until we had a secular Prime Minister who was willing to actually open the lid of the can that we finally got that Royal Commission. Do you think you realised at the time how big that would become from the outset or did that kind of grow on you with time? I realised that the Governor-General had to go and I knew that was very big. Uh, I knew he had to go on the final day of the trial when the verdict came back that the diocese had been guilty of negligence and was ordered to pay compensation of over $400,000 and punitive damages of $400,000 and some other associated things. And I called Yarralumla to get a comment from the Governor-General. I was answered by Martin Bonzi, his private secretary of the day, and he said he'll go and ask. He came back to the phone and he said, the Governor-General is too busy getting ready for a cocktail party. He can't come to the phone. And I thought, it's all over for you, mate. And so it was. It took a while, but... He had very strong protectors, very strong protectors. And he, he thought that he was immune. But once enough people came forward and told their stories it was all over for him because it became very obvious that he had failed to protect children and that's and he was where the buck stopped. It really does bring into sharp focus, I think, that aspect of journalism about holding those in power to account, isn't it? It's the, the ones who perhaps, yes, as you say, think that they're immune or it's a bit too lofty to be really held accountable. How, that's where the media needs to come in and, and do that, doesn't it? Well, I actually think that it would be best if the media didn't need to and I operate on that principle so if there is a problem and it's brought to my attention I go directly to the person whose problem it is who is responsible and I ask them to do the right thing so if it's a crime it's reported please follow through arrest charge run this case and let's see the justice wheels turning. But if that doesn't happen, then it goes to the press. So I don't run out to the press quickly. I do it in a very considered way. Sometimes it therefore takes a long time to get to the press, but by the time we get there, we have all the failure all the way up the line which stands it up very strongly. Makes it a stronger story ultimately anyway, yeah. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And sometimes it can be that someone else has done all the work and these are the enormously courageous whistleblowers that you find all the time. Mm. So there might be people, 
for example, there was one who whistle blew on the Dean of Manchester in England. It was an investigation that I did, which took six months. But the whistleblower in that case was Australian and he had reported to the church and had a civil action going for 14 years, letters going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Now, I wasn't there in all of that, but he had all his records, and so he had done all the calling to account for so long, and eventually that led to an inquiry in Britain into all the priests in the Anglican Church or the, as it is there, Church of England, since 1950. The Archbishop of Canterbury called that as a result of that investigation. Incredible, the work you've done, Amanda. It's had such far-reaching effects. Is that one of your big motivations for being in journalism, you think? The motivation is injustice. Where I see injustice, it's just that very basic thing, that's not fair. For example, with the child abuse thing, if the priests who are representing the church and are and choose to take on the role of guiding little children to love each other, you know, love one another as I have loved you and the golden rule and all of that, and then they are the very people who are committing crimes against innocent children, it's very simple for me, that's not fair, that's not right, what are we going to do about that? And it's not me doing it, it's other people standing up and saying, I'll tell you about that, Amanda, you write that this down. And I check everything they say. I have to do my due diligence. I check everything they say against all the available evidence. And then we ask whoever it is to fix it, to fix it. Is it a similar motivation as well, for the other bigger stories you've done, I think of, um, of course, the, the, the huge floods that were such a big part of your life for so many years. That I suppose there's some sense of injustice in the way those people were treated as well. Was that part of that? Um, I don't think it was injustice in that case. What It was sheer human suffering in that case. Mm-hmm. What had happened was a flash flood came down the Lockyer Valley. I was living right at the top of that at Mount Lofty in Toowoomba. I was completely unaffected. On the day of that flood, the police said there were 500 people missing. So we didn't know if those 500 were dead or out of communication or someone had just reported them missing because they couldn't get hold of them. But that was a big number of people missing. So my job over the next three weeks was to death knock and find out who the people were who died, why they died, who they were, etc. And in the final analysis, it was 23 people who had died. That included young children, very young children from just under two years old. But there were also families affected where the children were small or even unborn. There was a little child who was unborn who survived that flood. Her older sister died. Her two older siblings than that saved themselves. Their parents almost died. Both of their grandmothers died. It was a shocking event for that family, absolutely traumatic for that family. And my thought as a mother was, 
when these children get a little bit older or even get born, in 10 years' time or 15 years' time, they are going to want to know why did this happen? Why did my sister die? Or why did my mum die? Who tried to save them? And those big questions would not be able to be answered. So that was probably informed by some of that very early work with Dennis Butler. What, what are the questions and what answers are we going to get? And so I decided at that point that someone had to write this all down. And so I spent the whole year interviewing 120 flood survivors and rescuers and writing a book. And we have just come to another stage of that now. I mean, like, this has been going for quite a few years. Yes, the, the flood was in 2011, and I did a five-year follow-up study in 2016. I had just finished my PhD at that time. I filed my PhD on the Friday, and on the Monday I was in the car going up the valley to do the five-year follow-up because I had a deadline of six weeks. So I had six weeks to interview as many people as I could find, write it all up and be ready to republish the book. And when are we going to see that book? It's out. It came out at the beginning of 2017. Mm -hmm. And now I, am, I have just finished a project for the State Library. They originally collected all the tapes, all the original interviews I did for the original book and now they are collecting into that archive the five-year follow-on study and it, it is some of the most fascinating material I've ever collected as a journalist. And what makes it so? Well because these people have lived through such extraordinary times and they've they've survived it, they've spoken about having their homes destroyed losing members of the family, finding that they're not insured or it wasn't a flood and dealing with a lot of complicated issues, having to change their job because they couldn't work in that job anymore, not qualifying for the Premier's Appeal funding, subsequently being di diagnosed with cancer and their partner and their partner dying and having to move to get treatment. It's just a cataclysm of disasters. So from that five-year follow-on study, I have developed what I would call disaster cover. Because what I found in interviewing the rescuers, the signed up QFRS as it was then, rescuers, they had post-traumatic stress disorder from that disaster, even though they were trained. They knew it was a disaster day. They had all the equipment they needed. They had peer support. They had free psychological counselling. But even so, they were invalided out of their work. Most of the rescuers in that whole disaster were civilians. Most of them were civilians, and it was civilians rescuing civilians. Husbands rescuing wives, families rescuing other families, children rescuing adults, adults rescuing children, animals rescuing people, people rescuing animals. It was a lot of different things going on all at once. So all those civilians had no preparation, no equipment, no training, 
no peer support. They were offered counselling, but many didn't take it. And they got post-traumatic stress disorder, but there was zero financial help for them. They might have been living in a house that was trashed. If the insurance didn't pay up, they had to try to still pay off their mortgage so they could keep their house, but also pay for another house to live in. Now, there aren't many people who can afford to pay twice for their accommodation. And if they can, they can't often do it for very long. And a lot of these people had to wait five years for their insurance to pay out. So it was impossible. So people had... A, it was disastrous. So what I've proposed is disaster cover for anybody who does a life rescue in a disaster like this, they've stepped in, often they've risked their life, they've actually saved a life, but they've become traumatised from it. I reckon the government should say, thanks very much, by the way, we'll provide some housing for you. If you can't work because of your PTSD, we'll support you, just as if you were a trained rescuer. You're not a trained rescuer, but you've done a rescue and we can understand that that's pretty tough. And is that before government at all, for consideration? It's written up in Pacific Journalism Review and I have taken it direct to the state government. So another innovative solution that you have discovered, Amanda, and from I think from really listening to people and their needs and reporting that, and is that sort of a crucial part of it too? I, I try and talk to my students about how there's often more than two sides to a story. There might be five or even ten sides to a story, isn't there? Yeah, well, in this disaster, there was 120 sides to the story. Mm-hmm. People had a unique experience. Each of them did. In some cases, for example, there was one rescue. Like there was this guy who was on oxygen in a wheelchair and he realised that he needed to get out of his house because there had been 12 inches of rain. So he was a bushy, he was smart and he was watching the rain gauge and as it filled up, filled 12 inches in half an hour, he thought, I'm out of here because he was by the creek. So he got in his motorised wheelchair and he's motoring up the driveway and the water, unbeknown to him, was rising faster than his wheelchair could go. He was lucky that his neighbour across the way saw him coming and jumped out of his car and ran down to rescue him, but there was no way that he would be able to lift him. Unbeknown to him, his other neighbour had seen what was going on, jumped out of his car and rushed to him. So the two men got him at the same time. They grabbed him and in that instant the water got so deep that the wheelchair was swept away and the oxygen tank as well. So he had no oxygen but he had two people on him helping. He needed more. There was another one who ran out of the house following him, grabbed his legs. All three of those people were trying to rescue that one man. And as they went along, it became too hard. And one of them tripped. When one of them tripped, the other one, he became too heavy for the other two. One of them let go. And the, other, the last one left said to that man they were trying to rescue, 
Sorry, Kev. Don't think I can do it. We're going to have to let you go, mate. And Kevin said, that's okay, just let me go. Just let me go. And he thought he was going to die. And the, the rescuers thought he was going to die. But uh, the person who had lost their footing found their footing. All of a sudden, all three of them were on it again. And they were moving forwards. But then there was this almighty electrical flash which cracked beside them in the water. Um, they, uh, and then they had to get him through a barbed wire fence and there happened to be a guy coming along the road who saw all this going on and used his own vehicle to smash the fence down so that they could get him up there. So they dropped him in the paddock. He was a bit blue. They didn't know if he'd survive. And they saw his wife coming now, so she, she was following along behind. She had been defrosting the freezer. And her husband had just said to her, like, this all happened very quickly, mm -hmm. faster than I'm telling you. And so Eileen is in her, um, she put on her Wellington boots because she didn't want her feet wet. So she's rushing up as fast as she can go. The water comes up and overtakes her and she's, Got, got herself tangled with her big boots in the fence that they had knocked down to, for Kevin to get across. So, so they just drop Kevin on the ground pretty unceremoniously and rush back to grab Eileen and they just grab her as she's being washed away and drag her up there. The, the, um, the speed of the water had dragged all their pants off so here they are, like it's not actually funny, but it's a funny scene from the point of view. Here we have these old people lying up in the paddock, naked, um, but saved. And all these rescuers didn't understand what all the others had done. They never spoke to each other. It was only that I spoke to them and I helped them to understand what had happened, why someone had let go and why all that series of things had happened and that's so much of what a journalist does isn't it is pull all that information together to make sense of it to hopefully learn from this what we can such a random horrendous experience yes so everybody had a lot of things i did actually ask everybody what do we all what do you learn mm. from this what do we all need to learn from this and what i found especially for those who lost family members and this was unusual. I had done a lot of death knocks in my time, a lot. This was the first time that bereaved people would grab me. When I'd finished the interview, they would grab my hands and they would call my attention and they would look at me solidly in the eyes and they would say, thank you for coming here. I've told you this and you need to tell everybody who failed us and you need to keep telling them until everything is fixed. And what I'm a, still doing it. What a responsibility on you. I mean, it makes me wonder, Amanda, and I'm glad you, I should say, you've won a Walkley Award for that reporting. You pulled that together into an amazing documentary for Radio National 360. But what toll does this take on you, Amanda, and how do you look after yourself as a journalist when you're hearing these horrendous, incredibly taxing and stories? They're harrowing. 
Yes, they are. I guess I draw a distinction between active God trauma and active man trauma. Active God trauma, which was like the flood, is a lot easier to deal with mm -hmm. than active man trauma. So active God trauma, nobody hated you. You were just sitting in your house doing what you were doing and all of a sudden this water comes through that smashes your house, takes all your stuff away, may or may not take away your spouse and your kids and you're in, left somewhere clinging to a tree naked. Nobody hated you, but that thing just did happen. It just happened and somehow you get through it. It just happened. Active man trauma is entirely different from my point of view and you can see that in the PTSD rates. If you look at PTSD rates of natural disasters, the PTSD rates is about 5% of people affected by a natural disaster. The PTSD rate for something like rape, which is an act of man trauma, is 46%. Right? That's the difference. So where someone knows that thing should not have happened, there's no reason for that to happen, someone hated me for God knows what reason or no reason, but someone chose to do something to whoever, and that is a lot more of a challenge psychologically to deal with. And I think that's partly why I find dealing with the, the victims of child sexual assault more compelling. I'm more compelled to do it, but I'm also more compelled to help them deal with it and f to find somebody who actually cares about them, which helps to counteract what's been done to them. And they will often say to me, Amanda, but for you, I would be dead. You have saved my life. That doesn't tend to happen with the disaster people. They say, thanks for telling our story. It's not a matter of life and death for me, but hopefully the changes that we need will happen. There's a different quality to that. And it, it must take a lot out of you and you look to your family for support, I suppose, as well, as to, to get through those times. But how much can you tell people that they would understand, I suppose, as well? Um, there's, there's, my family used to hear a lot about it. When my children were little, uh, they didn't have a babysitter. I was, I was their mother. I was working from home in, in Toowoomba, so... I collected my children at three o'clock from school, if I remembered them. They have some stories about that. <laughs> they were only brought home to me by the police once. Um, <laughs> um, but they saw a lot of things. They would come to court with me if they happened to be caught on. So they would have tales of mum being more interested in other people. But on a Friday afternoon, when they would prefer to be at home relaxing if someone had killed someone or someone had killed themselves in a plane crash or a car crash or a shooting or whatever it was I was still working and that had to take priority at that time 
So, yeah, there's they would, you know, there was a fair bit of mothering by mobile going on. Um, <laughs> and, and I was not always there for my children as much as I possibly would, well, certainly would like to have been. You mentioned whistleblowers before. I just wonder, before we wrap up, Amanda, whether some of the events in recent times um, are of concern to you as something that's come up a few times with the other journalists that we've interviewed on the Journo Project, these AFP raids on journalist houses. Does this reflect, do you think, an erosion of press freedom in Australia? Is that a worrying trend for you? It's the most worrying trend to me. I I don't think it's a trend. I think it's actually a sudden change. I have always been very careful. There are police investigations where I'm a witness or have been a witness. I have given evidence in court before. I have to be very, very careful about what I do and the protection of the whistleblowers. I think the targeting of journalists is dangerous for our democracy because what we see from way back in the 1600s, democracy developed hand in hand with journalism. And if you go way back to English parliamentary democracy, you'll see that. Wherever there is an erosion in press freedom, there is an erosion in democracy. And so the way I see it at the moment is that there is certainly not enough press freedom, and I'll give you some reasons why. The reasons why, for example, the most recent Royal Commissions we've had of all the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of children who are the victims of crimes by senior important people in our society, they were not believed. Journalists might have tried to write stories about them. They were not published. In my view, it's a failure of the media that they were not published and that this disaster was not exposed 40 or 50 years ago. It should have been. This disaster should not have happened. It's an act of man disaster. It's not an act of God disaster. The Banking Royal Commission, if you look at just one thing, ANZ Bank, they were charging for no service there were 27,000 complaints about that. I find it very hard to believe, impossible to believe, in fact, that nobody of those 27,000 went with all their paperwork to a journalist anywhere in the country and said, look at this, my dead father has been charged $10,000 for advice on his account and he's dead. That was publishable. That was publishable when it happened. Nobody published it. Why not? So all of that, all of those disasters for all of those families who lost 
their superannuation or lost their worldly wealth and their retirement savings didn't need to happen. And that, I believe, is partly because journalism wasn't strong enough to do it. And, and that, that is a lack of press freedom. So if we, if we allow press freedom to be further eroded, I think we really are heading for some problems. And it has a chilling effect for whistleblowers as well? I don't know whether it will have a chilling effect for whistleblowers. I think it could go the other way because I still have enough whistleblowers knocking on my door to keep me going for the term of my natural life. Um, I think people who are so desperate, there was a little girl 12 years old, I spoke to her and I recorded her voice telling me she's not going to go to live with her father because she believes her father will murder her. She's been ordered to do that. Ordered. She's told me why not and I'm doing my absolute level best to protect her. But if the cops show up with their riot squad gear, I don't know that a 12-year-old won't give in. But my God, she's tough. She's 12 and her mother can't protect her. I told that mother today, they won't listen to you because I know they don't. She has to row her own boat. You can't be in the boat with her, it will sink her boat. Push her out from the shore as hard as you can and encourage her all you can, but she's got to row like hell for herself now. And that is a terrible situation for a 12 year old child in this country to be in. And thank goodness for journalists like yourself, Amanda, who bring and give them voice, actually give them that opportunity to hopefully change that situation for another 12-year-old girl down the track. We hope. We hope, yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been wonderful talking with you today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, perhaps that I haven't asked you about your amazing Walkley Award-winning journalistic career? I think the funding for journalism is very difficult at the moment. I think we need to fix it pretty smartly. I don't know how we're gonna do that quick enough, but I do see that we've got a squeeze. We've got an urgent squeeze between funding and press freedom. We need a lot more journalists on the ground my concern at the moment is to teach investigative journalism. I feel compelled now to teach young journalists what I know. I have mentored some and they're doing very, very well. And I look forward to doing the journalism, but also teaching it and passing on to others and inspiring them and telling them, don't wait till you're 40, like get in there. You don't have to wait until you're old to be making a difference, get out there and do it right now. That's a wonderful way to finish. Thank you for joining Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project, Amanda. Thank you very much, Nance. That was Amanda Gearing speaking to me on the Journo Project podcast.
Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.